right, good evening. We are currently in a series through Philippians, so we'll be in Philippians chapter 1 tonight. We're going to read verses 27 through 30 here of Philippians chapter 1. The Bible says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. So, we covered last week that our lives are to be lived in a way that is befitting of the gospel, becoming of the gospel, that we are not hypocritical in our life, but that we live a, God, we live a life that reflects that we are in Christ. We are unified around the mission of striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are not on a social justice mission tonight. We are not on a political mission. Now, those things have their place. But our, our church is here for the propagation of the gospel. Amen. So we must be about the Father's business. We must labor together, boldly proclaiming the gospel to a lost world. And so we must reach people for Christ. I'm not talking about reaching those who already profess Christ. But there are some who believe that somehow by going into other churches and speaking up that they've got this great gift. If you're so bold, why don't you go to the lost on the street? Let me challenge you to give the gospel at every turn. If we were to ask, this is just a interesting thought to me, but if we were to ask Rapid City what their opinion of churches are, what do you think they would say? We know in the first century, the churches were viewed by the world a lot differently than they're viewed in the 21st century. Would you agree with that? The accusations against the early church and this is throughout the book of Acts. You know what the accusation against the early church was? They preached Christ. The charge against the church in Jerusalem was how they had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. In Thessalonica, the rulers of the city called the believers, these that have turned the world upside down. And what was the charge against them there? It says, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. We see how Demetrius, who was a maker of false gods in Ephesus, accused Paul of turning many people away from idolatry. And he said, not only in Ephesus has this happened, but he said, almost throughout Asia, which is modern day Turkey. He said, man, these Christians are going out there and they're telling the world that they need Christ. 
The charge against Paul which ultimately led him to Rome was, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also have gone about to profane the temple. So have you ever wondered what the world may say about us? Now I understand ultimately we don't care what the world thinks. I get that. But there is a part of this that we could say what they think can be a gauge of how well we're doing what God has called us to do. Are we fulfilling the Great Commission or not? What would the world say that we stand for? Because churches today, they become branded by the world and by other churches. I know someone who attends another church here in town, great guy, and I'm not saying I'm necessarily against their church, certain aspects of it I would be personally, I guess, but I know that they, they preach Christ, but it's interesting because he attends this church, and every time we start talking about this, and they're a completely different stripe, but he always refers to his church as the cult church. And he goes on to explain the reason why he calls it that is because everybody seems to understand that their church is cultish in a worldly way. That the pastor's real hip in how he dresses. And the, the rock band is doing their thing. And, and so he refers to himself as attending the cult church in town. I'm aware that some view our church as putting too much emphasis on church attendance and serving the Lord. I'm okay with that. That's a pretty fair assessment, I guess. There are probably other less flattering opinions about our church. But my point is, if the world had to state what our church stood for, would they be able to verbalize the best in their language possible that we are united together for the one main purpose of disseminating the gospel? And again, they may not use Bible words, but would they be able to communicate that we are striving together for the faith of the gospel? I'm afraid that in far too many cities, there are no churches which the world can look at and conclude that they stand for Christ and His gospel. I hate to bring this up again, but it just popped in my head, and so I feel like the Lord would want me to say this, but... Even here in South Dakota, when Custer passed an ordinance, the city limits, that churches had to close, not one church within the city limits stood up and said no. What does that tell the world that we stand for? The world needs to see a church that is alive and active in fulfilling God's will upon this earth. See, we are the church of the living God. We don't serve a dead God. But so many churches look like death. No activity outside of the gathering place. And even when they're meeting together, it's just... Anyway, I'll stop there. So we not only need to live out the gospel by our life, but we need to be unified in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, which means that we go, on, we go beyond just living right. That's wonderful that we live right. But we also need to speak up and engage with others about their need for Christ. 
Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so we have to speak up. We can't just walk around living right with a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus. But we have to engage with people and we have to interact with them. And just that idea of having to interact with somebody can make a lot of people fearful. And probably all of us were there. I I don't know. Some people, I guess, are just naturally bold. But I, I know, I can remember those times of having some fear. I still have fear. But just the idea of confronting somebody about their need for Christ causes people to become fearful. Now, I don't mean that you're fearful to live an upright and moral life. That's easy, really, to live that outwardly. That's easy to do. But I'm talking about, again, engaging with people here. Informing someone that they are in need of Christ because if they die in their sins without a Savior, they will die and go to a devil's hell in the lake of fire forever separated from God. We know the world doesn't want to hear that. And it may cause us to be a little fearful then in telling others. It might terrify us. Well, notice verse 28 here. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Given the number of times the Bible addresses this issue, we can conclude that there is a natural tendency by man to be fearful to speak up. There's people to, fearful just to speak up in church. If we had testimony time, there would be people fearful. If, if your name was called to, to pray, you might be fearful. How are you going to address the world? There's a natural tendency towards fear. And what we find here in this opening statement in verse 28 is that there will be adversaries. It's not a question of if. There will be adversaries when you're doing what God wants you to do. And what this means, adversary, is that there will be those who are completely opposite of where you stand. We have a zeal to make Christ known, but there are those who have a zeal to tear Christ down. We are in direct opposition to each other. There's a lot of people in the middle, I understand that. We're talking about these adversaries tonight. And before the Apostle Paul came to Christ, he was known as Saul of Tarsus, and he sought to tear down Christ by rounding up Christians, arresting them, putting them in jail, and then testifying against them in hopes that they would be put to death. Don't you know people were scared of Paul or Saul? Three years after Saul was born again, he goes back to Jerusalem, and the Bible says in Acts 9.26 that he essayed to join himself to the disciples. They were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. They knew Saul well enough that they were like, I don't... They were afraid. But that's not what Jesus had taught them. Jesus had said in Luke 12.4 and 5, Be not afraid of them that kill the body. And afterward, they have no more that they can do to you. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. You know, Jesus said, look, don't fear those that can kill you. What are they going to do after you're dead? Nothing. So don't fear that, Jesus said. And then, as Paul would go around preaching, 
Now he was facing the same things that he was doing to the Christians. Being a Christian now, he's facing that. And the Lord would have to tell him, don't be afraid. In Acts 18, 9, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak. and Hold not thy peace. Just as the disciples had a fear of Saul who made havoc of the church, we discover that we have a fear in speaking up. And we know that there is fear in speaking up by our own actions. How many of you have been fearful? Somebody's passing your way and the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart to say something to them or even just hand them an invitation card or a gospel tract and we cower in fear and we don't follow through. That blood is on our hands now. Or how many times have we been talking to a co-worker and we sensed that there was an opportunity there for us to interject something and we kept our mouths shut? Or how many times have we been at a family gathering and something was said that needed to be addressed and we didn't speak up? The difference today is nobody's rounding us up yet. What's the worst they're going to do to you? What's your family going to do to you? Ostracize you? Isn't it interesting, there we go, isn't it interesting that we are not afraid to be branded a sports fanatic, but we get a little fearful if we're going to be branded a religious fanatic, if you will. What are we afraid of? What is it that makes us afraid to speak up on the behalf of Christ? And don't try to say you're afraid of speaking up. I know, I, I know you well enough and I've observed you all that when the right subject comes up, you speak up. Even those who want to act like that they don't like to talk and they're withdrawn, you let the right subject come up and blah, 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 blah. It's not really a matter of being afraid to speak up. Because when the subject matter suits the fancy, we'll talk. Amen, Jocelyn? I'll talk all night about... <laughs> Boy, have I got a story to tell y'all about what happened to me last night, but that's another time. So maybe you're afraid to speak up because you think you'll be embarrassed if you're not able to give... Maybe you're not able to give a scriptural response to a question. Or maybe they'll bring up an issue that you don't know how to address. You'll get pushback and you don't know how to respond. First, I would say to you, study the Bible more. And listen, you just got to go ahead and mark it down. You're never going to have all the answers. You know how crazy this world is and how much new stuff they keep coming up with? I mean, you'll start talking to people, they'll bring up something and be like, when did that become a thing? So study the Bible. But second, there will be things said by others that you won't have an immediate response for. And I would tell you, as I've said many times, just focus on the gospel. They're going to bring up all kind of stuff to you. You don't have to answer those things. Just stay focused on giving them what they need to hear, and that is they need Christ. You know, for many of us, and I know this was true about myself, and I believe it's true for many, that after we were born again, and we had that salvation experience, there was a boldness we naturally had just to tell others. It didn't really matter who. We didn't even know that we didn't know anything. We didn't even know what responses would be. We just naturally were giving the gospel. We had this boldness 
because of what God had done in our heart. And I would tell you, ultimately, that's all you need. All you need to know is what God did for you. And then you spread that. But what happened is, our, our zeal, when we were just babes in Christ, and we had this natural zeal just to tell people, over time, we quickly learned, so really not even over time, but we quickly learned, not everyone is as, as excited about Christ as we are. How can this be? I mean... Christ saved me and he wants to save you and you ought to be excited and man, let's just win the world for Christ. Well, hold on now. They're not that excited. And we discovered that some are just as bold in their resistance as we should be in our proclamation. And we were called all kinds of names. We were called foolish. We were called brainwashed. We were labeled alongside the cults of this world. And we didn't have all the answers. And so we started to remain quiet. And we became more withdrawn when we had opportunities. And our presentation, we started to become more and more timid. But we don't have to be frightened when we are armed with the truth. You know, the truth doesn't fear. Truth is never afraid because truth stands on its own. And here's the good news. Truth doesn't need our abilities to keep it propped up. We just need to proclaim the gospel in spite of our adversaries. So we want others to know what the Lord has done for us. We want others to uh, experience that same deliverance. So we proclaim they are sinners in need of a Savior. But our adversaries are going to come along and try to say, No, no, sin is really defined by the culture. What may be sin in America may not be sin in this country over here. And therefore, it's all just culturally defined. And they'll try to tell you there is no Christ. And there's a battle. It's a spiritual battle. It is wickedness in high places. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood. And these adversaries will seek to silence Christians. Those like the Apostle Paul. Who are bold in their witness. And sometimes they can become aggressive in their response, those that hate Christians, they, be, they can become aggressive in their response and even at times can become violent. And so Paul says this, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. He says in nothing. In nothing. Don't be afraid. In no way whatsoever, Paul is saying, are you to be affrightened by your adversaries. And it's not a matter of if they're going to face opposition, but it is a matter of how they respond to the opposition they would face. It was coming. No matter what. As long as they were trying to do what God had called them to do, you can expect there to be opposition. And Paul says, don't fear that. Isaiah 51.7 says, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. And then in Isaiah 51, 12, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die? And of the son of man which shall be made as grass. God knows we're going to experience fear when we start to proclaim Christ. But he wants us to overcome that fear. And so he gives the command over and over and over again in his word to not fear our adversaries. 
Have you ever asked yourself this? Is my fear of witnessing worth somebody else going to hell over? What if you're the only believer that crosses their path? What if God, what if the Holy Spirit was setting up a divine appointment for y'all to meet by your car breaking down? Or by that cancer diagnosis? Or by that financial hardship? On and on and on we could give examples of what ifs. Maybe God is setting up things so that you who are a believer and should know to give the gospel, crossing paths with them, that you could be the witness to give them the word of God. Do you have a fear in witnessing? God has left us here as his ambassadors. We are his representatives upon this earth. So we must overcome fear. So how do we accomplish overcoming fear? 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now this passage that I just read to you is clear that if we have fear, then we have not been made perfect in love. And perfect love, it says, cast out fear. What kind of love is he referring to? Well, in the next verse, John says, we love him, speaking of God, because he first loved us. The love we need is God's love. And we need a love for God. And if you back up to 1 John 4, 16, you'll read this. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And then the beginning of verse 17 there says, Herein is our love made perfect. Perfect love casteth out fear. Therefore, let me try to put this together, okay? If you have fear in proclaiming Christ, then your love is not made perfect. And your love can only be made perfect by dwelling in God. And this love for God will cast out your fear. If you are fearful to reach the lost, then you are not dwelling in God like you should. Now that's the Bible, that's not me. So it's okay if we all agree with it. Let me bottom line it this way. If we loved God as much as God loves us, then we wouldn't be fearful to speak up and do the Father's will. So what does that mean? It means this. God loved us enough to live and die for us, and we ought to be willing to love Him enough to live for Him. Even be willing to die for Him if necessary. The worst that can come upon us is death. But what did Paul already address just before this? To die is gain. And for me to die and to depart from here is far better because I'll be with Christ. Psalm 56, 3 and 4, What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. In God, I will praise His Word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Perfect love casteth out fear. We just need to dwell in God. You see, when we start dwelling in God, we get the heart and the mind of Christ, which Paul is going to address in the next chapter. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And when we start to dwell in God and we start getting the heart of God, we start to lose that fear. Because we understand what God's will. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
And so we go to them and we give them the Word of God. Listen, we're not being contentious when we give it. All right? We're not looking to just fight. But in love, we're seeking to give them the Word of God. Now, moving on, in verse 28, Paul says, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. And so what we find here is there is a great difference between Christians and their adversaries. Paul is actually saying that being persecuted, he's actually saying being the persecuted is better than being the persecutors. There are those who are the persecutors, they are destined for destruction. It says it is an evident token of perdition. Matthew Henry wrote this, Those who oppose the gospel of Christ and injure the professors of it are marked out for ruin. On the other hand, those who are persecuted uh, for Christ's namesake, it is a token of their salvation. That word token means proof. It is a proof of their salvation. Being persecuted is an indication that we are in Christ. If all we do is get along with the world all the time, something's off. And again, I'm not talking about just picking a fight. But the carnal, the carnal man is at enmity with God. Being persecuted usually means that person is in Christ. Because the Bible says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And those who are persecuted for God show forth their salvation that it is of God. Maybe this passage will help a little bit. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 6. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. So he's saying, we understand you're going through it, but listen to what he writes. Which is a manifest token, which is a made known proof of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. What is Paul saying? He's saying this, don't worry, God is keeping score. He knows who are the persecutors, and He knows who are the persecuted. And He's going to reward everyone accordingly one day. Romans twelve nineteen says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And as our pastor would say in Mississippi, it does not say, Vengeance is mine, praise the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of it. God is in control. He's going to deal with those who need to be dealt with. We just need to stay focused on keeping the main thing, the main thing. All right, I need to try to finish this chapter, so let's press on to verse 29. Say, since when have you needed to finish anything? I don't know, but it just makes you feel like we're moving fast. Amen. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Well, this is such an interesting verse. Understand what Paul is saying here. This is telling us that God is gracious in allowing us the privilege to believe in Christ, 
but get this, but that God is also gracious in allowing us the privilege to suffer for Christ. Well, that doesn't sound right. Well, that's what it's saying. We like the believing half of this verse, amen? I like the idea of believing in Christ, but we don't really like the suffering half of all of this. But notice the reason for both of these, are grant, why they are granted unto us. It is given in the behalf of Christ. You see, Christ is honored when we believe on Him. And He is honored when we suffer for Him. He is glorified to the world when they get to observe that. And this is the verse, listen now, this is the verse which separates the phonies from those who actually have Christ. Many profess faith in Christ, but how many will suffer for Him? So if you want to separate the professors from the possessors, then you turn the heat up, and then you watch what happens. Once you turn the heat up, you start to separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who remain and are steadfast when the going gets tough are those who demonstrate their understanding that it is a good thing to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. 1 Peter 3.14, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Over the last year, we've watched as the heat has been turned up around the world. Especially in ways in America like we've never seen. Churches being told they cannot assemble. And we've seen it in Canada even more harshly. Not only can you not assemble, but we're going to put two fences around your church and dare you to come in. We're beginning to see the separation. And so what we find here in verses 28 and 29 is that we should expect the heat to be turned up. If we are living the gospel, and if we are unified in striving together for the faith of the gospel... There will be adversaries, and there will be suffering along the way. 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We all know that verse, but listen to what it says next. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You see, we've had it so good for so long we don't really understand what all we may have to go through by being in Christ. I mean, these first century Christians went through it. You understand that they were being sewed up in animal skin so that the beast would tear them apart? We'd have no idea. We think persecution is because there's a court order that says you can't assemble more than 10% of your congregation. And if you can't run with the footmen, what are you going to do when the horses come? We've just had it so good. But now that we're beginning to see the tide turn against Christians, persecution is coming. I believe these verses that we are studying like tonight, they're, they're starting to become very real to us. We're beginning to understand, yeah, there are adversaries. Real adversaries. Not somebody took my, my pew. Well, somebody took my parking spot, and I'm not coming back. And that's the kind of garbage we did for about 50, 60 years. And it's no wonder that we're failing the test already. 
1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, Beloved, think it not a strange thing concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. These men knew what it meant to, to write that. Peter would be crucified. Jesus was a perfect man and was crucified. All the apostles except for John were martyred. James was ran through with a sword. John the Baptist was beheaded. And tradition says that the apostle Paul was beheaded. Real persecution. In verse 30, Paul reminds them how they are not alone in being persecuted, having the same conflict you saw in me and now here to be in me. Remember from Acts chapter 16 that Paul was beaten and he was imprisoned while he was planning this church in Philippi. He mentions some of this treatment to the Thessalonians when he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 2.2. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel with uh, gospel of God with much contention. And here Paul is now, he's in Rome, and it's business as usual for Paul. He's arrested again for his faith. And so he says, you now have the same conflict which I have, because the Philippians were going through it. Remember, Philippi is a Roman outpost. It was pretty much where Romans, it was like a second Rome. And these, these believers are going through it. He says, you now have the same conflict conflict but understand he says this is a good thing it's good that you would suffer for Christ and so Paul wants them to expect the same treatment and we do ourselves a disservice when we stop expecting persecution because when it does happen we can become guilty of questioning God's protection and God's love but nowhere does the Bible say we're going to escape any form of tribulation nowhere some will th say things like, I thought God loved me. Look at what I'm having to endure. According to the set of verses, that's the wrong attitude. Paul wants them to know that it is given in the behalf of Christ that they should suffer for the Lord. They are actually blessed to suffer for Christ. We need to understand that there are adversaries, there will be sufferings, but we also need to know that this is nothing new. In fact, if you were to view all of history over the last 2,000 years, you will find overall that there has been far more periods of persecution than there have been of what we have enjoyed in America. Because even today, there's people being beheaded for their faith. So it's more common to experience persecution. So in closing, expect adversaries, anticipate sufferings, know that God is in control and He's going to reward accordingly. We just need to stand fast, unified, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray.